Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And you're grooving along there in the chair. Indeed. It's a nice little catchy intro, but you've got a guest. I have. I've got Claire Varley with me. Look, do you know the quote about the chicken and the egg? Which came first? Yeah. Well, Claire Varley's book... The Bit In Between, ah. has a writer of romance novels writing about his own love story? Or is his writing influencing his own romance? <laughs> there you go, round and around. You can write your own so- love story. <laughs> Sounds complicated, but this book, The Bit In Between, is insightful and extremely funny. Welcome, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. Now, very quickly, we know Oliver has had to separate from his love in Cyprus and rush back to Melbourne. He's at an airport waiting for his next connection and the seat next to him is taken. We're going to hear a little bit from The Bit In Between by Claire. Okay. And forgive me because this is my first time ever doing a reading from the book, so why not do it on the radio? Why not? first for published or not. Oh, look, yeah. Okay. God, I hate waiting in airports, she moans, giving him a look that he refuses to return. It's like, come on, do we have to check in so early? What's the rush? She shakes her head and looks up at the ceiling. Planes. He does not respond, quietly wishing the section of ceiling above the young woman would cave in or else the drug-sniffing beagle would get a taste for blood. The young woman reaches across and offers him an almond from a plastic packet and Oliver instantly feels bad for fantasising about her death. He takes one guiltily. They're organic, she assures him, and he suppresses the hate that that tries to rise up again. He concentrates on chewing the almond and takes another when she offers. Then, because he is, after all, not a bad guy, but is just having a bad day, week, month, he feels guilty about his anger and decides to be a decent person and engage in conversation. He turns to say something to her, possibly to comment on how uncomfortable the seats always seem to be in airports. But before he can say anything, she throws up on him. Kind of like the surprise that happens all through this book. You know, these two, um, Oliver and Alison, get together very quickly. Now, where is she from? So Alison is a country girl from country Victoria, but she's skipped out of town as quickly as she could once she finished uni and she spent a lot of time traipsing around the world trying to work out what she wants to do with her life. Yeah. Well, look, just another little bit. They're flying over Australia and Alison looks out and says... What city are we flying over? And he says, oh, that's Broome. She says, how do you know? Oh, I recognise my mate's house. <laughs> just, you know, it's just this really, really good dialogue between them. And they do become a couple. And they go off to Solomon Islands. Now, why do they go there? They go to the Solomon Islands partly because that's where I was living at the time when I wrote the book. Um <laughs> But also because I suppose I I spent just under two years in the Solomons um, working in community development and for a country that is so close to Australia in which we're so heavily invested in terms of aid and development and as well as in terms of uh, the mining and the logging industries there, we really know so little about the country yet they know an incredible 
amount about us. So I really wanted to, I suppose, have the backdrop of the story being this really wonderful country that that we just so know so little about, but which deserves so much more attention. Well, thanks to your book, I know um, Honiara is the capital, and it's on one of the islands, the Guadalcanal Island. There's 900 islands, of which about 600 islands are uninhabited. That's oh, well, th- right. thanks for that little bit of knowledge <laughs> there. I, I appreciate that. Well, Alison, the girl from our book, the woman from our book, 2020, mid-20-ish, uh, she works as a volunteer there. So what's Oliver doing there? So Oliver is writing his much-anticipated second novel. He's had his first novel come out um, and it was very well received, I suppose much to his to his disgust because his publishers made him completely change the ending of his book. Yeah, and it's not going to happen again, is That's it? That's right. So yeah. he's very determined that his next novel is going to be the, the real novel, the, the pure novel that he's always wanted to write. And this is really another wonderful feature of uh, Claire's book, The Bit In Between. It's every first author's dream and reality that's gone into this. Um, He wanted, this is a quote, he wanted this book to be everything, a brilliant literary masterpiece, a commercial success, comedy, tragedy, an instant classic. Though on days like today, he would just settle for finished or even started. (laughs) Oh, do you know about that? So, okay, well... Where and when was he setting this book, this next book he's writing? So Oliver's decided when he gets to the Solomon Islands that he's going to write something that's that's set against the backdrop of the country's independence in the late 70s. Um, He's decided that maybe it's going to be a little bit like the movie South Pacific but a little bit different. Um, And so he's decided it's going to be looking at a country that is essentially at, at its birth that, you know, is for the first time coming together as a nation after years of colonial rule. Well, let's hear it from page 84. There are so many snippets in this book that I just sort of think are so clever. To capture the insanity of creating a nation where nation hadn't existed before with the seemingly random grouping together of a chain of previously non-unified islands, the conservative in him wanted to write something he could hear a flag fluttering behind, while the radical in him wanted the book to stick its finger up at colonialism for essentially ruining the world. He wanted it to be revolutionary, but also funny and moving and packed with underlying life lessons, a bestseller and a literary phenomenon and something Oprah would have included in her book club. <laughs> oh, I think everybody wants that. <laughs> and of course, he's had two weeks of writer's block where the only thing he can do is a haiku. Listen to this one. I think it's lovely. Two pens full of ink. One is blue, the other not. I use a laptop. So after two weeks' work trying to write something uh, in the heat of Solomon Island, there's another bit, and I'm going to call on Claire Varley once again from page 60. Van stopped working. My brain stopped working. I'm a terrible writer. I hope I melt so no one has to see this appalling mess. That productive, eh? I can't start it. I just keep... See for yourself. Oliver let out a frustrated sigh and pushed the laptop towards Alison. She knelt by the desk and read... The sun, begrudgingly, like the pompous cad that it was, conspicuously refused to set, which rendered these midsummer days bewitchingly luminous in a magnanimous fashion. Colonel Drakeford would be dining on Spam that night. And that is such a terrible, terrible first 
<laughs> first paragraph ever. How did you come across that one, Claire? Did it just come to you, did it? it they, these were the most enjoyable parts of the manuscript to write because there wasn't the pressure to actually do good writing. So, um, yeah, a lot of it, I think when I was over there, you tend to read the books that that are around and there's not a there's no bookshops in the Solomon Islands so you read what people have left behind so there's a lot of old uh, history books or I suppose um, you know a lot of books that probably no one has really heard of that have ended up living in the Solomons for the last 50 or 60 years. So there was a lot of interesting literature to dip into. But you've got Oliver, you know, he, he does have the internal critic weeping openly. His characters were talking like Jane Austen characters. And he looked at it, some of his writing and, uh, and, and thought something that people lined their pets litter trays with. <laughs> She, uh, you know, sort of even um, Alison could sense when Oliver was in a moody bastard writer mode. <laughs> and what did Oliver think of himself? So now we're on page 128. So this is what Oliver thought. As Alison worked, Oliver continued to write. He'd once assumed that when his first book was published, he would suddenly feel secure in himself as a writer. Instead, the opposite had happened, and he'd convinced himself that he was, in fact, not just a terrible writer, but a terrible writer, writer who had fluked it. And this was even worse, because now someone would discover that he was a fraud and make a scandalous current affairs program about him, and he would be scorned by the literary world and have to find a job working as a windscreen washer at a moderately busy intersection, because he wasn't qualified for anything else. Oh, poor Oliver. Oh, look, I started this chat about a chicken and an egg and it's a love story between a rooster and a chicken that led Alison to become a vegetarian. This isn't the only mini love story in this book. We've got nearly 20 other vignettes, little snippets of love stories. Why include those? I think what I wanted to do with this book is, on the one hand, it's just Alison and Oliver's story, but... At the same time, it's a story of all those people around them who they had either fleeting or meaningful relationships with. And I think what was really apparent to me living in the Solomons, which is such a small country, and you do get to meet so many people, um, you know, both the locals and the foreigners, and talk to people about, about what they're doing and why. And I suppose it was that idea that at any point in time, we're really just the accumulated backstory of our whole life that has brought us to this exact point in time. And that was something that I wanted to explore with those little vignettes. They were fantastic. Look, we had them, little mini backstories really, weren't they? Yeah. Oh, marrying the wrong man or waiting forever for a promised love that never returned or marrying anyone just to get away from a home or taking up a job that did bring shame but also money. Occupations would take away the loved ones or not getting the job you want. So another, maybe mugging, stealing. And this is what happened. The, the story was written and then it happened to Alison. And this wasn't the first time. You know, it, it grew on and on. And Oliver decided that he wanted to prove that he was really writing not just coincidences but writing the future. And he, what did he do? He brought back Ed. That's right. He brought back Ed, who I suppose is Alison's um, brilliant mistake from the past. He's he's the one who was exceptional when she first met him and then she slowly realised that he really wasn't all that exceptional. And so 
Ed comes back into their life and creates a whole lot of mishap and and, um, and drama into their relationship. And of course, what he, as he said, the first novel didn't have the ending he wanted. So what's the ending that he wanted in the second novel? So Oliver is is adamant from the start that he's not going to write a happy ending just because that's what people expect because Oliver figures that life doesn't have happy endings so why should all his his books but as he becomes further and further invested in Alison and their relationship and as he becomes further invested in his book he starts to wonder if if the ending he gives the book does he want to go through with his ban on happy endings or does he want it to have a happy ending because that's what he decides he wants for himself. Oh, oh, nicely put. So we're not giving it away (laughs) because we have talked about this once. This is another quote from the book. Oliver had once told her that the end of a book was the author's way of offering their advice to the world. Now, I don't know whether every ending of the book does that, but I had to think twice about the ending in uh, Claire Valley's Valley's book because it might. It might. And I think um, I'm not quite sure what my message was for the world with this book. And I really like the idea that hopefully when you get to the end of my book, it's going to make you think about what do I want to take from this and what did this mean to me rather than what you think that the writer's trying to tell you. Oh, yeah, relationships. Mm. Now, finding a publisher is a little like finding love. (laughs) Hard, very difficult. And this is the true story that Claire is going to tell us about how she found a publisher for her book. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, look, I suppose with the book, I spent a lot of time in the slush pile and probably with love too. Um, But (laughs) so, you know, what happened? I came back from the Solomons and because I didn't have an agent, got a list of all the publishers who took unsolicited manuscripts, then slowly and determinately, one by one, sent it to each of those and built up my collection of thanks but no thanks. Um, and all up, by the time it got picked up by Pan Macmillan, they were the ninth publisher who had sent it to. So, um, oh, wow. yeah, so it, it really is. I suppose my advice for anyone would be just to be really stubborn because <laughs> just... um, it often takes much longer than you think. And it really does come down to... Who's looking at the slush pile? Have they got time to look at it? Who's putting things in the maybe pile and the no pile? So there's this so much luck that comes into it. Does that mean stubborn in love as well? <laughs> look, I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> um, another quote, last quote. Thank you. I managed to be born and I'm pretty confident about dying. It's the bit in between I'm struggling with. And what... Claire Varley's given us her book, The Bit in the Between, is just a fantastic fun read. Thank you, Claire. Thank you so much. And here's my interview with Abigail Ullman. I have in my hot little hands a collection of short stories entitled Hot Little Hands. The author is Abigail Ullman, and the collection is her first published release. So, Abigail, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Congratulations on the release. Thank you. Now, the stories in here are insightful and at times confronting. So what were you aiming for with this collection? Well, the stories are about adolescent girls and women in their 20s. So I really wanted to um, write from that perspective, a very close perspective, and just get people to um, be identifying with that point of view. And yeah, I guess, uh, and then as the collection grew, it also um, some other characters came in. And um, so there are some uh, women in their 20s as well. Well, basically the first story 
got me in called Chagall's Wife. I have a background in education. And you have a student and a teacher. This is almost a taboo topic. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. <laughs> it is a taboo topic. I guess um, that power dynamic of the of the older man and the younger girl has been, um, that taboo topic has been explored in, in fiction um, for a long time, probably most famously by Nabokov in um, Lolita. So I really wanted to write about that sort of dynamic, um, but from the point of view of the adolescent girl. I find that interesting, the adolescent girl, because it's a very powerful force and motivation what girls think what girls do and who's the victim here yeah I guess my aim was to kind of encapsulate the ambiguity uh, involved in that sort of situation and really in all the stories I was looking at kind of the ambiguity of um, that occurs you know in relationships well she's fascinated I mean you know it opens that the girl sees the teacher outside of the school parameters and all of a sudden her perspective alters and changes yeah it's I think it's a powerful moment for her to see a teacher they just run in she runs into her teacher her science teacher on the weekend so I think it's a powerful moment for her to see him out of context and therefore what is permissible basically and what is not permissible in terms of how you view somebody And it was also important for me to include just some details about the teacher to show that he's in a fairly vulnerable place in his life. He tells her uh, early on that he's um, he's staying with his parents at the moment. We later learn that he's just gone through a divorce. And, yeah, so he's also just a sort of, you know, he's a subjective person and he's also in his own... Are you telling me teachers are human? Uh, I wouldn't go that far, but... (laughs) The second story is called Jewish History. That's right. And, again, in some ways, you're exploring another sort of taboo topic about how the Holocaust is conveyed, taught, and you've also got the the Russian emigre uh, in there as well. Tell us more about that. Uh, Yeah, the main character of that story is a a Russian girl who's... um that, one, that story is actually set in the 90s and so she's been she's come with her family um, from Russia and had a quite tough time you know leaving Russia and getting to Australia and then she's been thrown into this um, yeah Jewish day school in Melbourne and um, <laughs> yeah is dealing with the uh, yeah the social hierarchies uh, of, of this new situation well it's it's very interesting because with the Russian emigres there was a lot of support and help but also then if having worked in that environment you could see the dynamics of the class system sort of thing, exclusion, inclusion, all of those sorts of things taking place against the backdrop of how the Holocaust was taught about people being excluded. Were you saying anything about the way the Holocaust is taught at all or not? I guess not so much about how it was taught but or how it is taught, but more, I guess, like the weight of victimhood and history on a community and particularly the way that that's I guess the way that that's taught and sort of seen and held by the you know the young people in a community who are pretty young to be kind of dealing with that sort of subject matter and then the way that might um, affect the perception of people who are actually kind of suffering or you know experiencing victimhood in the present tense. Well this is it we we fail to see those victims who are around us even though there's a backdrop of identifying this whole notion of victim and um, 
conquer and all these sorts of things. Yeah, that's exactly right. Actually, the uh, the writer Jacqueline Rose um, talks about that. She's uh, in her book, The Question of Zion. She says, um, uh, people who identify as victims find it difficult to, uh, you know, identify the victimhood of others. And that was an interesting idea to me. That's part of where the story came from. Yeah, I felt that I'd witnessed something like that. Sex figures very prominently in this collection. You've, <laughs> yes. you've actually got one called The Withdrawal Method. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, that story is set in San Francisco. That's one of the stories uh, with a slightly older protagonist. She's in her mid-twenties. And uh, yeah, in, early on in the story, she finds out that she has become pregnant um, by using the withdrawal method. But also, I mean, you've got another one called Plus One where somebody wants to be pregnant as well. And so you can contrast these two stories about the desire to be pregnant, the happenstance of being pregnant, all of these sorts of things come into play and the different reactions at different times. Plus one is is actually interesting because we have an author uh, who becomes pregnant, but the, the baby is a substitute for a book in many ways. That's right. In that story, that character, yeah, she has a book deal and and just can't finish the book. And so she decides as a substitute for that, she's going to have a baby and, and do that instead of, of having a career at that point, basically. But it, is it a form of escape, would you think, or not? Yeah. I, the way I thought of it was just uh, um, basically opting out, just being in a, in a difficult or uh, sort of uncomfortable position and then kind of taking a leap in another direction in order to opt out of her current situation. Now, here's, well, actually, um, same old, same as... Uh, now, I found this, again, confronting, um, again, a taboo topic in some ways. You deal with abuse, but it's a very cloudy... Pers- cloudy is probably not the right word. How would you describe what you've done there? Uh, well, that story is about a girl who... Uh, a, a, a year nine girl who sees a, a counsellor or a therapist and um, it comes out in the therapy that she has been possibly abused by her stepdad, and then she tells everybody about it. And Well, the key word there is possibly, as you've said. That's right. And again, I was interested in sort of the ambiguity of the situation, how somehow things can be seen as abuse and or not seen as abuse and the kind of, yeah. What about the attitude of adolescent girls in that sort of scenario and their ability to fabricate, create? Is that part of it as well? Well, the character tells everyone at school that she was abused and then kind of gets popular and then all of the other the girl the other girls tell their stories of you know some sort of ambiguous and and possibly um slightly traumatic sexual experiences and i guess my idea for that one was um i'd studied some trauma theory when i was doing like a postgrad dip and there was this idea that trauma can exist not only intergenerationally as with something like the Holocaust, but that it can exist laterally within social groups. And so I was interested in exploring that. And you've got the role of the psychologist, which seems to be almost unhelpful in this sort of scenario. Uh, They're not saying anything directly, but it leaves the path open for the child to create a story. 
Yeah, the, the psychologist in that story isn't necessarily the best one. I don't think I think she means well. I just don't think she's um, she's doing the best job for the age group of, of the girl who she, uh, who she's dealing with. Um, yeah, but again, I think I tried to leave it open as to whether that's a fa- whether the abuse is a fabrication or not in that story. Well, yeah, it remains open, so the reader is left in a, a sort of position of wondering uh, just how real it is, who is responsible, what has taken place. That's right. And I tried to give enough information uh, to let the reader make up their own mind. And that's what's one of the interesting things about having published the book and having people read it now is people telling me, oh, it definitely happened. There was there, That was an abuse situation or the opposite, saying this girl's fabricated it and she's ruining a man's life. And that's, you know, we see this in the media constantly. Um, something like, you know, the Woody Allen situation. I think the Bill Cosby situation is probably a bit uh, more clear cut. But, um, you know, that we have these conversations in the media all the time and so I was interested in exploring that in fiction. Um, Your charm won't help you here. I sort of had uh, visions of the reluctant fundamentalist in in (laughs) this one. Somebody is stopped, Claire I think it is, Mm -hmm. stopped at the airport and refused permission to come into America and is going to be deported back to where she came from to a place she has no connection. What are you trying to suggest or communicate here in this story? I guess she's a character. Um, we've been with her in two earlier stories and she's sort of been floating through life and kind of on her charm quite a lot. And she was earlier doing a PhD and she's now finished it. So, yeah, I think it was just a character. She's a character who I wanted to have stopped in her tracks. I think that another thing these days is that um, in certain cities in the world, including San Francisco, people tend to live for longer, like they're in their early 20s. So I I lived in San Francisco for a while and um, it's not uncommon to meet people in their 40s, for example, who have three roommates. It's just a very expensive city and people, you know, ride their bikes around and hang out in bars and, you know, so there's not the expectation that you're going to grow up and sort of (laughs) quote unquote settle down by pro- whatever that would mean in the middle class by property or get married and at an early age so um, you can kind of float for a long time so this is a character who is post PhD hasn't really got her stuff together and is um yeah and she's but she's kind of living this floaty life until she tries to return to the states and get stopped in her tracks well basically I was reading it in some ways from the point of view of someone who's seeing a paranoia develop in America and because Claire Um, Well, it was suggested that she was wanting to settle in America or was going to take advantage of the system. So the authorities didn't want her settling in America as an illegal immigrant. But then she's cut off. They're just going to send her off. And it's all routine. It's all impersonal. Oh, how would you describe it? Um, yeah, I think it is. Uh, there's just a system in place that she gets put through in order to be ejected from the country. And I think I wanted to encapsulate some of the absurdity of that, that she, I guess that's what you were saying with the reluctant fundamentalist, that mm. she is treated, um, she could, you know, as though she's committed a really grave crime when actually what they're the reason they're deporting her is because they believe she has a quote-unquote intent to immigrate, which really could mean anything. And she says it's like a pre-crime because she hasn't even committed it yet. Yeah, minority report pre-crime. Yeah, exactly. But you had the handcuffs, you have uh, the pregnancy test. There's a whole series, in some ways, of very invasive routines because of a paranoid system. Well, that's the way I'm looking at it. Are you looking at it more from the character point of view of that sort of floating character not really having any roots. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. I think as the writer, I always have to look, make sure that the character has an arc and that it's satisfying, and, and especially because this is a recurring character, that it makes sense with her general arc in the book. And it's the last story in the book, so I needed it to kind of give give the book and her story a good ending or a satisfying ending, I hope. Um, but they're also, I also wanted it to be a procedural. So I take a character that we already know and I just put her through these systems. And we've only really seen her in this very hipstery scene in San Francisco. Um, but now all of a sudden, and she's, yeah, she's, you know, being questioned in airports and, and taken to jail and, yeah, put through all of these steps. Abigail, we haven't talked about all the stories. We nearly have. Uh, the book is entitled Hot Little Hands and it's a Penguin release. And that basically takes us out from published or not this, this week. week. And more, you, more writers next more, week. More writers next week. It should be a lot of fun. And so we'll